Welcome to all of you who haven't left the Promised Land for the holidays. So great to see you. And a few visitors who've come to the Promised Land for the holidays. And I do want to make mention of a friend of mine who will slap me after the service. But in the front row is my very dear friend, Debbie Churchman, who you might have heard rumors that Ross Roger runs Olive Tree Church. It's not Ross, it's actually Debbie. Um, she knows every detail of everything that goes on. She knows who shopped at what time and everything. She's omnipresent. And Debs is just such glue in the Olive Tree Church. And so I'm so stoked that you can meet her. There she is. She towers head and shoulders and knees above Kimber. Um, we love seeing them together. But Debs, it's so beautiful to have you with us. And um, we hope you'll feel very welcome. And um, we really do honor you for all that you do in, in the life. It's the stuff that gets, that's unseen, but Debbie's there and she's incredible. Okay, so today is a beginning of a new series called Tales of Grit and Grace, um, But God. We did a But God series a while back, and we felt it was an important thing for us to revisit, especially in a time when... Yo, a lot of us are having to like really throw our roots down deep to, to stay plugged in um, to God. And um, what but God is all about is all these times in Scripture where there was something going on. Um, it's these times when we see God break through in the miraculous. And we, we have a situation which is looking dire. It's looking like it's impossible for anything to come right. And then there's these words, but God. And it happens over and over. Here are just a few of them. It says in Genesis, but God remembered Noah and the wild animals, and so they didn't get drowned. I, I, I'm just added the, and they didn't get drowned, but in a okay, but there with me. Then Joseph told his brothers who had done evil to him, as for you, you meant evil against me. They had actually like sold him off into slavery. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So we see where... Um, the enemies and the enemy and a whole lot of circumstances conspired to make things look impossible. We see but God moments. And Samuel says, uh, David was roaming around in the desert. Day after day, Saul was searching for him. Saul wanted to do him harm, but God did not give David into his hands. And then in Acts 3, it says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. So this series is all about looking at these but God moments. And, um, and the, the little byline, Tales of Grit and Grace, really talk about what is involved in this whole but God thing of just waiting for God to come through for us. And really the but God moments um, that we'll wait for are the ones that are completely his grace. It's just where he comes in, there's no effort required on our part, and he just does a miracle. And we all want those, don't we? Those are um, the grace moments that we all want. We're kind of going, I'll, I'll sign up for those ones. And some of us are waiting for but God moments. And then there are the but God moments that will only come through sheer grit of our own. These are the tough crying out from the pit of our belly kind of moments in our faith journey where it requires our grit and our endurance in order to see the but God moment come. So I feel very excited about this series. I think it is a series that is going to grow us in our faith and stretch us and help us to live in discomfort because I do know one thing, we never grow in comfort. We just don't grow where it's comfortable. We might grow a bigger belly um, or in other ways, but in our spiritual, in our inner man, in our strengths, we just don't grow where it's comfortable. And so this is a series where we're going to embrace the deep satisfaction and hope that we get from understanding how to navigate through these uncomfortable spaces. Our whole faith journey really is about growing. 
And whilst there's this incredible moment of just coming to faith and being saved and made righteous and redeemed and so much more, there's, there's the in an instant kind of thing, and then there's the working it out. Um, in Philippians 2, do we actually have slides? We've had so many headaches with this, so yay, we're winning. We can give a little whoop for that. Um, okay, in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So there's this, but wait a minute. At the moment that I accept Jesus, I'm saved. So then what is this working it out in salvation? There's the vertical part, that's the God and how he sees us and how we are with him. That's perfect and done completely at the moment of salvation. But then there's this horizontal working it out, and that's how we live in the world and how we relate to people around us, and that's the working it out. So I just want to ask you to take a moment to think about anybody who's really inspired you in your faith. You all got somebody who's come to mind. It could be somebody you actually know. It could be somebody you've heard about, somebody famous. You've all got somebody in your mind. Okay, we know that there are just some people who have done the most radical and ridiculous things in faith. I want to talk for a moment about our own Ross Roger, um, the lead elder of Olive Tree, who has inspired my faith in a huge way. Um, so along came this annoying young guy with huge energy and vision. He drove us all mad, okay? And um, he came into a church and he had this vision that we would become a church, a big church that would have plants all around Durban and we would be a church who would really radical in our faith in our desire to care for the people of the city and the suburbs of Durban. Now, that's, that's fine. That sounds like much like very many visionary leaders and what they want to do. But what made it that much more radical is the setting into which he came to do this. So we were a little church of less than 100 people, mostly retired, hobbling along. Um, we all wanted to leave, and those of us who le were left in this church, um, less than 100, were literally there because God had told us firmly not to leave. Um, and so uh, you could not have found a church more different than what Olive Tree is today. Um, our services were anywhere from two to seven hours long. Um, not quite, maybe about two, two and a half. The message was decidedly unfriendly for people who were trying to explore the faith. Um, we sang in Hebrew. We didn't even sing English. And there were flags. There were dancing. There were spontaneous moments that were almost designed to freak people out, I, th I think. It was basically, how can we make this uncomfortable to the max? That's what our church was. So to hear this leader come in and say, oh, you know, we're going to make this just so friendly and easy and accessible for people to come into, and we're going to just love the city radically, a lot of us were skeptical. But he had, faith, he had hope, and his hope became faith through actions that he took, and he had a lot of grit, and God had a lot of grace. I grew up in a non-Christian home, and where a lot of people, friends of mine in faith and people that I work with, lived, uh, they grew up in Christian homes, the topic of conversation around the dinner table was often around like a Bible devotional or speaking about the heroes of faith. And um, growing up in a family that wasn't um, in the church, my family would speak politics, and they would speak about radical leaders and very inspiring people who challenged systems of injustice, and I got excited about that. And in fact, I noticed that very often these people that they spoke about were people of faith. They very often 
were Christians. So much so that I got to the point that I actually at some point thought, oh, well, you're a Christian so that you can address injustice in the world. And you're a Christian so that you can do these, these things and bring about change that is so needed. I loved um, to see how these people of faith would have the Bible in one hand and revelation in the other and go about tearing down giants of injustice and apartheid and laws that discriminate and work environments that were not favorable. I love, love, love to this day and have always loved stories about people who do good for others that should be impossible. You know those people who just, they, they get this idea, they get this download from God and they do something which should be impossible. Our friend told us this, um, Gary told us this beautiful story that his parents shared with him as a young boy. About, um, it's a story of a man of faith. He was walking to work one day, and he came across a little girl who was standing alone on a bridge. He stopped and talked with her and said, why are you standing here? What are you doing here? And she told him that her mum had died the night before and had said to her, go and stand on such and such a bridge and wait until Jesus comes for you. This man took her hand and said, Jesus has come and started his work with orphans. What an incredible way to be Jesus in that moment of need. Now we don't know exactly who that person was, but due to similarities in the story and in his calling, we suspect it might have been a man named George Mueller, Mueller, who ended up in his life caring for over 10,000 orphans in orphanages that he opened. He never solicited funds, he just had radical faith. This is an account of an event in his life. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food in the house to get them to eat. The house mother of the orphanage informs George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the table. tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide the food for the children, as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, I was up all late last night, all, all of last night, not able to sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. So I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was a milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage, and the milk would spoil by the time the cartwheel was fixed. He asked George if the milk could be used in the orphanage. George smiled as the milkman bought in 10 large cans of milk, and it was enough for the 330 children. Now, George was not always such a person of great faith and character. As a young boy growing up in Germany in the early 1800s, it is said that he stole money from his dad. As a teenager, he would sneak, he snuck out of a hotel twice without paying. He was caught by the police, put in jail. As a Bible college student, he used to go to bars, drink and gamble and was known to be the life of the party. His favorite thing was to make fun of people, especially Christians. So what changed? What happened to make him the person that we hear about who did this incredible work with orphans? We'll explore that just now. Now, another woman that I'm a huge fan of is this lady. I'm going to ask for her to come up behind us. Does anyone know who that is? Anyone? Okay. Her name is Rosa Parks. Okay. And she is famous for saying the most profound thing. Can I have the next one? No. Isn't that an incredible quote? <laughs> it's quite something. But let me tell you what the no was about, because that's what makes it an incredible no. Rosa Parks was in a bus um, at a time in America where there was a section for white people and a section for colored and, and black people. And um, the section for white people had filled up. And somebody came to Rosa and said, you need to stand up. You need to give your seat away. And she said, no. no. 
And um, some people tried to say, oh, you know, she said that because she was tired and she really wanted a seat. And she said emphatically, no, it's not that I was tired and I wanted to keep my seat. I was tired of giving in. And so she began a movement that ended up having segregation on buses banned and, and began a massive movement throughout America. She um, had other quotes that were very famous. You must never be fearful of doing what is right. Never be fearful when what you're doing is right, she said. She also said that God has always given her the strength to say what is right, and she attributed her ability to love her enemies completely to God. Maybe you've watched people go through things and wondered how do they have the faith to endure it? Or how on earth do they live that way? Maybe it's not everything about their life, but maybe there's a part of their life that really, really inspires you. Um, one of our, there's a local guy who lives in the area called Darren Owen, who has been instructed by God to help churches keep church buildings. And so at massive personal cost, but with great joy and gratitude that he can be a part of this, he just helps churches to own church buildings. My own husband, <laughs> I just want to celebrate his faith for following his crazy wife on her calling to come up here and do this, despite the difficulty for himself. Nikki and Andre Follion, a couple up the North Coast we all have heard about recently, who heard God's promise way louder than the doctor's facts. How did these people get there? How did they live a life of, of such extraordinary faith? How do we get to a place where we trust so much that we get to make decisions that make absolutely no sense. So I'm going to use a few props here for a moment. Um, you can tell I'm a mom of a, of a little one. But um, there was this fascinating um, survey that was done where they looked at um, 2,000 churches and over half a million people in churches and came up with a fascinating study which they called a reveal survey. And basically they realized that there are probably, in every church, four groups of people who are somewhere along the spiritual continuum. So let's call this the first group of people, all right? The first group of people are people who are in a church exploring faith. They haven't decided on Jesus. They are still suspicious. They are skeptical. Um, they maybe have some issues with certain doctrines like the Trinity or the inerrancy of the Bible or salvation by grace. Um, they love to hear stories about people who've crossed the line of faith, but they're very much in a seeking space, in a place of going, I want to understand this better. Then we have the second group of people. And these are the people who've crossed the line of faith. They've actually gone, okay, God, you're it. Jesus, I think you're it. They've moved past the skepticism. They've arrived at a saving faith in Jesus. They want to grow in their faith. They are the single most irritating group of people in a church because they seem to have a monopoly on answered prayer. Okay? It's like, because they renewed it, put up your hand if you're one of these people. Be brave, come on. Okay, thank you, Billy. All right. They, they, they are so passionate and so excited in their newfound love of Jesus that it's just like everything's going right. It's, all their prayers are answered. They're literally seeing loaves being multiplied before their eyes. Their primary source of spiritual growth is the church. They um, really come here to fuel up and be strengthened. And they really do look to the church for resources and tools for growth. Now, the third bunch of people... How cute is this? This is Hedwig from the nine and three-quarter station. Oh, Cole, leave it alone. Okay, so um, 
The third set of, of um, group that you'll find within the church are those who are close to Christ. They're maturing. Um, and they have shifted in their, in their um, spiritual growth from relying on the church to actually um, relying on themselves, to actually being on a journey and, and, and saying, I'm responsible for my growth and my spiritual maturing. They've taken ownership of their spirituality. Their faith has become intensely personal. And their faith is really beginning to affect every part of their lives. And then fourth, we have, stay there, um, the Christ-centered person, the mature believer. This is the person who has completely yielded their life to Christ. Their identity and significance is completely in Jesus. And um, they give away the life of God through tithing, evangelizing, serving, pastoring. They just are completely plugged into God. Now, I want to just say this. Wherever you are on this continuum of four, Wherever you are, God loves you. He is besotted with you. He adores you. Okay. From here to there, from when you accept Jesus, from when you move into a life of faith in Christ, that is where you start to exercise this thing of enduring faith. Okay. Now, if you, if you don't move at all, it doesn't matter. God loves you. Remember, you are saved, redeemed, righteous. You're amazing. Okay. In God's eyes. But in order to grow in life and abundance, in order to grow and strengthen your spirit, there's a movement that happens along there. And that's the difficult thing. That's where it gets tough and that's where it's enduring. Now, the other interesting thing about this little survey and study is that it gets you to ask a few questions. So please be brave and shout out. Does anyone know which the easiest step would be? One to two, two to three, three to four. What do you think is the easiest step in this continuum? Pardon? One to two. Okay. One to two is, in fact, the easiest thing because that is just really accessing God's grace. It's just a decision going, okay, Jesus, I'm choosing you. Okay. And, and in that moment, his grace allows us to come into relationship with him through his son, Jesus. It's just a decision. It's just a prayer. Okay. This is where it gets tough. And particularly from three to four, where we're having to let go of everything which is holding us back, everything which is tying us to this world, everything which is keeping us off our, our uh, eternal perspective. So from two to four is what we're looking at today. This is the journey of digging into a faith that is enduring, a faith that is a wrestle, a faith that is hard, and, but a faith that we will never regret pushing into. It's not something that you, you will move along and regret that you did it. It's the stuff that is there and cannot be stolen by the world. It is a strength. It is eternal. It is valuable. So what is faith? I think Hebrews 11 and 12, I'd encourage you all to go and read up um, when you get home today or sometime during the week. From Hebrews 11 and 12, 12, it gives us a lot about getting a handle on what faith is. So starting in Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Okay, so faith adds substance to the things that we've hoped for. We hope for a lot of things, don't we? I know that some of the things that I've hoped for have been a fulfilling job, to give my children the best, to have a great, great friendships and a great marriage, to be financially free, to make a difference in the world, to see our country stable. We all have these hopes. Some of us have hoped to see crime, well, I think we all hope to see crime eradicated, to see all orphans be adopted, um, to see the extremes between wealth and poverty even out. We have these hopes. 
But not everything that we hope for has substance. I'm sure that not everything you guys hope for has substance, and yet we continue to hope. Faith is evidence of the unseen. Faith is the thing that we want to see, that we can't see, but it is the thing that we act in, that we step into, and it gives us evidence for hope. So everything in this world that we see, we get to see and encounter and experience through our five senses. Okay, sight, touch, hearing, smell, taste. Faith allows us to see these things. Even though they're not before us, when we see people step into faith, these things become more tangible and real. It gives us substance to the things we hope in. Now, Sheldon and I, as you all know, we came here with a hope to see and be a part of this community and what God wants to see it be. We came here with that hope. That was our hope when we arrived when we first responded to the call, and it remains our hope today and every single day. But there isn't a promise in the Bible that says, Natalie and Sheldon, this will happen, or Olive Tree Church, this will happen. We've had many words and many visions and many pictures which have given us hope. We've been told over and over again that this will be a community of believers who are different, who stand out, who do something different, who have radical faith. And I think certainly that we're taking a step in the right direction even by having me as the pastor in terms of being a different church. But in this environment, some two and a bit years on, we can't see and touch and smell and taste everything that we thought that we would see at this point. A huge amount of what God has said will happen has happened, but not all of it. There's a lot that still remains unseen. And by us taking steps to enforce this hope, to to step into the things that we hope to see, that is where faith becomes something more tangible. So how does faith come? The first thing I want to say to you about faith is that it is a gift. Okay, you know about spiritual gifts, right? I'm going to read to you this from Corinthians. So faith is a gift. It says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them all. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, in every one, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for, com- for the common good. To one, there is given the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Okay, so faith is a gift. Do we have to do anything to get faith? No, we just have to say, here is this faith, and I'm going to open it. I'm going to use this gift. I'm going to allow it to grow in my life. So God gives each and every person, I believe, in this world, the ability to trust him. He gives us a gift of faith, and it's our decision to see what we will do with that faith. Okay, so faith is a gift. The second thing is that faith comes by hearing. In Romans 10, 17, it says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Now, what's important to know about this is that word here is two types of word. There's the word from the Bible. It's the, what we get taught and what we read from the word, from the truth of the Bible. And then there's also the word that is revelation. That's that God's spirit speaking to us. When we're looking at something incredible, or when we're having a conversation and something just drops into our spirit, when we're just on our own and crying out to God, when we're on our own journaling, there's the word, the alive spoken word, the rhema, that just drops into our spirit, and there's the word of God. And faith is grown in both of these places. So faith comes by hearing from the word of God and his revelation. 
And then this is the part where it gets a little bit hard. Faith is purified, and as it's purified, it grows. And that typically happens through trials. Okay, as I said, it, it's something that grows in un- discomfort, not in comfort. So 1 Peter 1 verse 7 says, These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. Okay, it's the trials that will show us that we have a true and enduring faith. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through your faith, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So enduring faith is crucial for every believer because it is actually what connects us to God. It's in those moments when we we kind of go, I can't go on. I don't know what's happening here. I've trusted for this. I've believed for this. What now? I'm just going to turn it back or I'm going to throw in the towel. It's in those moments when we connect to God and we go, I don't actually have the human wherewithal to make this thing work. It's in those moments that our faith deepens, that we connect more deeply with God and that we develop a faith that is enduring. I'm absolutely sure that on many occasions, against the opposition which Ross faced, he wanted to throw in the towel. But God gave him the grace to keep going. I can imagine that with no business model and monthly donors and NGO set up, that it was hard for George Mueller to have the kind of grit that he needed in order to be responsible for all those orphans. But God, in George's endurance, pitched up and allowed him to provide for these children. Rosa Parks endured much hardship. She exhibited absolute courage and grit in the face of death threats, Uncertain, um, uncertainty and poverty as a re- result of losing her job over what she was fighting. But God dealt with her fear. He helped her to love her enemies. And he prepared, and she was prepared to endure it, even if she was never going to benefit it. Rosa Parks said that even if she never saw what she was fighting for transpire in her lifetime, she would do it. Two, week in, two weekends ago, many of us reeled in shock as our own uh, local couple, Nikki and Andre, who had shown incredible faith um, for a baby that the doctors had said wouldn't live, had to say goodbye. And yet, even as little Saxon stopped breathing, Nikki decided to have an extraordinary faith. A faith that, honestly, a lot of us in this room would classify as crazy, but faith which we see evidence for in Scripture. She asked some ladies from this community to stand with her and contend for her little one to return to life. Yes, they prayed for Saxon hours after she had stopped breathing. And I know that this is a bit jarring and alarming for some people to hear, but I know that she would have been drawing on this verse from John, which says that Jesus raised the dead and said we would do greater works than he. In that moment, she decided to have an enduring faith and to stand on something that was unseen. She would have been using those kind of verses to drive her belief that Saxon could be raised. And the ladies and girls who went with her, did they believe? Did they have faith for that miracle? I think some did and some didn't. But what's more important is that they pitched up utterly and completely motivated by love. Because Paul says this thing, and I really want us to get a handle on this today. Paul said, if I have any spiritual gift, because remember, faith is a gift. If I have any spiritual gift, or even all of them, but not love, then I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You can pitch up with all the faith in the world. You can pitch up with... Speaking in tongues, you can picture up with a gift of prophecy, but if it is not rooted in love, it is nothing more than a noise and destructive. 
So I know that some girls arrived there that day with faith that Saxon could come back to life, and some girls arrived there with no faith of that, but they went motivated by love, and that is what counts. Enduring faith grows when we know how to trust in God's enduring love. I know that there are people in this community who are up against horrendously difficult things, things that they don't feel they have the capability to deal with. But I know that God wants to purify your faith, to help you to trust more in him and push through. And I want you to know that he will not leave or abandon you. If what this thing is is for the good of others, if it is born in love, God will help you. He's not going to let it fall. Faith is not ever signing up for a journey of ease. This, this thing is not easy. The moment of salvation, the moment of getting our inheritance in God is easy. That's fully His grace. But learning to live abundantly and to grow strong.